This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Australian Federal Police is like a dog with a bone. This week we found out they have been chewing through the ABC journalists' travel, private travel records and that the AFP last year accessed two journalists' metadata almost 60 times. Good job there's now a parliamentary inquiry into journalism and security laws. So... What really needs to happen to protect press freedom? Meantime, barely a week goes by that Facebook doesn't make the news within the news media industry. The latest hot-button issue flows from a legal ruling that publishers can now be sued for content the publishers didn't make and for comments they can easily turn off. So, what to do about that? And while we're at it, what to do about the market power of Facebook and Google? Ahead of the expected release of the nation's consumer competition watchdogs report into digital platforms, we ask what steps need to be taken to even off the play- playing field in favour of news media. And finally, but not least, but not least important, uh, finally, we, does the media have a problem with diversity? You look at the average newsroom and you'd probably say yes, yes, and yes. So again, what needs to change? Is it time for quotas or are there other mechanisms that need to be put in place to ensure that the media looks like the nation it's talking about? To answer these questions and many others, we are joined by a diverse, esteemed, and dare I say it, wonderful panel. We have Antoinette Latouf, who is an award-winning multi-platform journalist and the director and co-founder of Media Diversity Australia. Hello, Antoinette. Hello. Thanks for having me. A great pleasure. We have Emily Watkins, who is the newly minted, sort of, uh, media, media reporter uh, and investigative reporter for the Crikey Offshoot, Inc., and uh, a long-standing friend of the show. Um, from Crikey and previously ABC's Media Watch and the NT News. Hello, Emily. Hi, Peter. And um, our third guest is probably best described as a journalist who became a media entrepreneur. Uh, But he's definitely on a mission to save journalism, or as he puts it, and I quote, to repatriate $20 billion in advertising from Facebook and Google back to the journalists who report the world around us. Welcome to the panel, the CEO and co-founder of the video platform, Uvu, Ricky Sutton. Hello. Good to see you. Great to be here. 
Well, it's great to have you, Ricky. And just for just to sort of background you in this journalism thing, uh, you've been a reporter for, or you were a reporter for many, many years, working for MSN, for Fairfax, and News Corp in the UK and here. Yeah, I was um, I was worked for the national newspapers in the UK. I began my career as a war correspondent, um, and then kind of worked my way through uh, the national papers in the UK, and then to News Corp here. Been mm. here since two thousand four. Wonderful. And also, you've been jailed a couple of times for doing your job. We'll get to that later. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to have you all here. Um, and we'll have a bit more time, I hope, later in the show to talk uh, more about your various projects and ventures. Uh, but let's get cracking with the news about the news. So media raids. We had the media raids now, what, three, four weeks ago. Um, and, and the flow on just keeps giving. We found out this week that the AFP has access to Australian journalists' metadata 58 times over the, uh, over, over the course of one year. So that's the data that's on your phone records, which can reveal where, where you were, who you're calling, how long you spent talking oh. and various other things. So the identity of the journalists uh, whose uh, data was accessed is unknown at this point. And that means the journalists in questions have no idea that they know that the AFP now has their metadata. Uh, I wonder how many ABC journalists are frantic and wondering if it's them. Well, They've you'd, got to be you'd, you'd obviously several dozen. Think that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you think it was something to do with the raids uh, on the ABC and the News Corp journalist and Nikos Methers, right? Mm. Oh, I mean, it, it could be an unrelated matter. Who knows? Like, um, I think everywhere, it's kind of open slather at the moment, it would appear. Yeah, that's right. And that's part of the problem, right? Suddenly everyone mm. thinks they've lost their metadata. Um, so this information was revealed by the AFP itself in its submission to the Parliamentary Inquiry into Press Freedom and Security Lords. That inquiry was sparked by the raids I just mentioned about. Um, is, this, uh, the, is this news that metadata has been accessed without journalists even knowing a sign that there is even more at stake? Emily, what's going on here? Well, look, um, I mean, like... Antoinette said, and like you said, it may or may not have been those two journos that, uh, whose metadata was accessed. And I think, you know, it's just a, an indication of, um, of, of some of the chilling effects that these laws have had on journalists, because it's not even just the journalists who, um, who would be worried about their information being accessed. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have leaked or spoken uh -huh. uh, outside their contract or terms to the ABC or to other journalists uh, who might be rethinking their decision and others who, who might have considered uh, uh, leaking on matters of of public interest who may not do that or may have decided against it because, um, you know, they don't know if they, they could be found out. Yeah, exactly. Antoinette, at Channel 10, has there been, have you been talking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we talk about around the water cooler um, is that while my industry mates, my Media Diversity Australia mates, you know, my you know, the chatter on Twitter that while a lot of journalists are concerned, um, you know, some politicians are making noise, but we don't think the general public are as concerned. Mm. Um, one of my colleagues, you know, quite funnily and aptly perhaps said, you know, our stocks are low as journalists. Mm. We, we're not necessarily seeing outrage and uproar from Mr. and Mrs. Kmart Chopper. I, I'm just not sure that the general public feels as sympathetic or outraged as, as to what this impact is going to have on the industry and the flow-on effects is what this impact is going to have on the kind of, you know, stories that we're able to break. That's yeah, a good point. Um, what do you or, think needs to happen for the general public to get upset about these things? Is that, is that asking too much? 
What do you think, Antoinette? Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think um, it's interesting because it comes at a time where I think many feel that outlets or journalists who over, you know, overstep the mark, um, there isn't a lot of accountability within their news outlets or within reg- so-called regulatory bodies, be it the Press Council or ACMA. Um, and so I, I think it's hard to have a sympathy for, for journalists when there is this sense, and I hate to think that, Trump is having an effect here, but you only have to read some um, Facebook comments and people going, oh, fake fake news, mm, this is mm. just right-wing crap, this is just left-wing rubbish. Mm, you know, people mm. are really quite hotly divided mm. um, in their politics and are really quick to dismiss anything they don't agree with. But then there are some examples of, you know, pretty sloppy, divisive journalism that is seems to be fair income and people just do it and, whether you know, what the impact is on an individual or a community, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount um, of consideration or much in the way of backlash. So it's hard to to have people rallying for our craft where some of our craft, you know, some of our uh, some of our colleagues, I would argue, aren't doing a particularly wonderful job. Well, Ricky, not to pick on you here, but you'd have got a lot of journalistic experience to draw on and mm. you did work for the News of the World. I did. In, which broke a lot of stories but wouldn't be, you know, one of the world's greatest loved newspapers. Did you go into journalism expecting to be loved? <laughs> Can we go back to the previous question before we answer this one? <laughs> oh, um, well, give you, thought, you can think about whether you ought to be yeah, loved. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So I think that um, I just want to raise the point on the previous point about the metadata being captured is that um, sure the story is now breaking because of this uh, or the news is now breaking because the stories have already broken and it's in focus. Mm-hmm. The question is, is how many stories are being stifled before they're ever known by this kind mm-hmm. of interception? Of course. So uh, the thing that concerns me most is that the more likely and more damaging and more important publicly the story is going to be, the stronger their concern to find out the information to stop it ever being revealed. And our job as journalists is to keep the powerful accountable. Mm. And if the powerful have the ability to stop that accountability at its inception, we don't get to see the stories that we need to yeah, see. So jo- our job is not done. No, absolutely not. And the problem is, is that, you know, the the rules and the regulations for us as journalists to actually get our stories into the public arena are getting harder and harder. The costs of defamation and the risks of not having a named source are hammered into us every single day, as they should be. But the problem is, is that getting a named source to say something is hard enough, given the threats that they face as a whistleblower. But if they can then be intimidated before you get to publication by this kind of interception, then you have a whole new game. And that's a game that's played outside the public's attention. So how are they supposed mm-hmm. to know if it's a story they need to know? Exactly. And I'll take it on notice that you probably didn't go into journalism to be loved. <laughs> no, just, 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 just in passing. No, in, in fairness, I'll answer that question. I, I went into journalism because, uh, you know, I was a, a kid from a kind of not very exciting council estate in Bristol in the UK. And I wanted to see the whole world. And I thought it was super exciting. And the best way for me to find a passport to go and do all those things was to go into journalism. It was the only way to do it. Uh, right, and, and to be honest, I live in Australia. I'm, in a different country every couple of months it's the best career ever yeah and here you are in the two oh. SCR studios I which mean. is which is which was my goal when i was 16 <laughs> That's right. let's get back to this uh, this 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 issue uh, emily um we now have the wonderfully named parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security investigating various aspects of the espionage laws uh somewhat um Oddly, I guess, we have the same committee that basically, when they passed, said that these laws were perfectly good, and now they're investigating whether they're good. So do we have any hope in uh, in this inquiry, do you think? 
Uh, look, probably not. I mean, successive governments over the years have have always uh, moved in favour of national security over public interest or open government. Um, you know, when we we have some of the the broadest um, anti-terrorism laws in the in in the Western world that have kind of been introduced in bits and bobs since two thousand and one. Um, I think it's more of a PR exercise than anything uh, to kind of say, yeah, look, we're we're looking into it. Can't say anything until the inquiry is mm. done. Maybe, uh, yeah. I guess and I, I think it's. Yep. Sorry, I think it's a really hard sell to the general public who might not be media literate and, to Ricky's point earlier, may not understand just how much um, stories may be stifled before they even reach the public based on this kind of pressure and monitoring. But at a time, you know, in the age of terror, and I guess I hate using these American buzzwords, which I continue to refer to, it's really, you know, people seem more willing to cash in their civil liberties and their press freedoms when they think it's, you know, it's it's counter-terrorism, it's, you know, yeah. measures. It's, it's, it's why we haven't seen a a large attack like Europe has, um, mm. you know, this is going to mean I'm safer and our capitals are safer, then uh, I guess that's fair dinkum. I guess what um, you're getting at is one of the kind of central issues in this is, the, and you've all kind of mentioned it, which is the lack of transparency. You know, we don't really know. We don't really know what stories are being suppressed. We don't really know whose journalist metadata has been uh, accessed. We don't know who are the subject of journalism information warrants. I mean, so if we if we don't know, how can we make informed decisions about this, right? Uh, I, That's right. But it also, in terms of selling it to the public at a time um, for them to care, it also comes when the political spin is that you know we have this tough stance on terrorism. You know, we've we've intercepted boats. You know, I mm. mean, that's a different issue with with refugees. You know, and we haven't had an attack. And the AFP had uh, a series of raids last week. They had planned terror attacks on churches and um, and yep. police stations. We've intercepted that. We are keeping us safe, and part of doing so might be curtailing press freedom just a little bit. But hey, bloke, you know, hey guys and girls, look at look at the benefits. We're a, a safer country for it. So, so are you saying just on that point? Are you saying that the news media industry, and this is for everyone, but for starting with you, Antoinette, do you think the news media industry doesn't sell itself, sell its use? to the public that well? I mean, I, I think the, the Walkley Foundation is attempting to at the moment, you know, what price would you pay for independent journalism? But, but I, I think that the fact that, you know, people don't want to pay necessarily, you know, subscriptions for to get past paywalls, um, I, I'm not sure how much they're, they're valuing the product, the, the product um, mm. and valuing the craft. Mm. Okay, um, Ricky, just on the tech side of this, because Uvu mm. is a kind of a great merger between a journalistic idea and, and some very smart piece of tech. Can tech help us in this? Can tech uh, help protect journalists in any way? Hmm. It's funny. Uh, I, um, I had the pleasure of opening a conference to 35,000 engineers in Las Vegas at an IBM event last year. And my opening line was that uh, I know you're all here as engineers, I understand, but let me tell you, technology can be learned trust has to be earned okay understand oh. the difference yeah. technology has to be learned because i'm presenting to all thirty-five thousand of you and i can't write a single line of code but the reason i'm here is because the world's in a crisis of trust and if we're going to use technology let's use technology to assist trust that ultimately helps people let's not use technology to drive machines that drive more money to technologists oh. and i think we've lost that so going if you merge oh. that with the conversation that you were saying a moment ago about are we failing as journalists to tell our story i think that we've had 10 years of falling behind on the technology curve but we've now caught up 
And it's now our job to then tell the rest of the world that trust does matter. And now we can start to sell our story with the weapons that those technology companies have used against us. So I think this is our time, actually. I'm an optimist for the future. But the trust has to be re-earned. Um, and I think that's when I mentioned earlier that some of our stocks are low. Um, I think trust in media outlets, because of some really divisive, polarising um, reporting, or, you know, what we're increasingly seeing click online and via social media is um, opinion pieces, but they're not, they're not sold or marked as opinion pieces. They would, they're under the guise of a news piece, but when you read it, there's not a single source. Mm-hmm. There's very little what I would call kind of independent journalism, and it's just, you know, rants from your desk are cheaper. Yeah, of course. And it rewards emotion rather than fact. Right. That's right. And, I, and you know, and so often, and I see some of my journo mates, you know, calling it out or screen grabbing it, going, this is a blatant editorial. Uh, we saw a lot of it around Israel Folau recently, masked as a, as a, as a supposed news story. Um, so I agree that trust needs to be earned, but there, we, need to, we need to be doing a better job to, to earn that trust and to, um, for that integrity, um, for, to have that integrity attached to, to our craft. Mm, okay. Uh, talking about trust and technology, uh, another week, another week goes by and Facebook makes uh, our job that much easier. Um, the latest with Facebook it revolves around a defamation case involving Dylan Voller. Uh, for those oh. who have not been following the case, Dylan was one of the boys that the Four Corners show a year or so ago covered in their expose of mistreatment in detention centers in the Northern Territory. Uh, he was attacked uh, recently uh, with several pe- online with several people making allegedly defamatory comments about him on a number of uh, Facebook pages uh, in news media. The short version of this, and there is a longer version, but the short version of this is that the, the story is that the, now the media is now, it seems, responsible for posts by third parties on their Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to be a very chilling development, Emily. Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of media companies are incredibly concerned about about this because they're, um, you know, in in a time of uh, of great pressure on their bottom lines. They've used, mm. like we've already talked about, they've used social media to um, push some of those more divisive and controversial. Um, news stories or opinion pieces because they generate comments, which uh, pushes them up the algorithm and all those sorts of things. Um, and they've really relied on that to drive traffic to their to their websites and to drive revenue, um, which, yeah, I mean, they're, they're really crapping well, the, their Yeah, heads. and the kick in the tail here. Well, t- 10, Daily for, 10 Daily, for example. So yep. it's a digital outfit launched by 10, which um, I'm a part of. So we've been around for about a year. Um, and the audience, which is actually growing rapidly in a, in a, in a you know, many people say um, a sh- shrinking media marketplace. Um, but 70% of, about 70% of the usage comes um, and clicks and eyes come via social media. Mm. And the audience is tap- that it's tapping into is kind of the project uh, type audience, digitally savvy, younger professionals, always on the go, accessing their news and current affairs, mm-hmm. primarily and largely online. So for a site like 10 Daily, which heavily relies on social media traffic, we've now had to have, you know, uh, workshops with our legal team and training about what we can and can't do. Um, But also a lot of time is spent having to go through and create comments or delete articles at the end of a shift when somebody can no no longer monitor them. So it's adding extra work to newsrooms, which we know are often already stretched and 
uh, by media or sometimes try media in the fact of the the ABC um, and SBS. So it's certainly putting it's certainly putting extra pressure, um, and that just means less time for journalists to do traditional to do traditionally journal to, to do their jobs as journos, and yeah. instead they're monitoring you know really horrible comments. Well, the the kick in the tail of this uh, ruling by Justice Rothman it seems is that it seems to ignore his ruling seems to ignore that media companies can't readily turn off the comments on their Facebook. So is this a, an example of what the judiciary not fully understanding the kind of social media world we live in, Ricky, or is there something else going on again? And kind of tech, so is there a tech solution to this? Yeah, I have mm. a contrarian view. Okay. I'm afraid. Go ahead. Um, my contrarian, well, my contrarian view is that this is the wake up call that the media needs to recognise it doesn't have to rely on tech companies to succeed. Mm. Uh, we worked perfectly adequately before uh, social media came and mixed our world up. I say this, many of my friends are at Facebook. Um, you know, we had Facebook and Google on our advisory board for a while. Um, but the truth, you can't control. If, if, if you give up, think about if in a print context, right? So if you print newspapers and you don't own the presses and you don't own the news agent and both of them are directly competing with you, how much control mm. do you actually have? And we've kind of given that control back to social media. Now, I understand that we were convinced that the metrics that we had to work towards were page views and audience size. I understand. Mm. But that only makes sense if we're actually telling the news and we don't want to make money or it's making us money. If it's not making us money, right, then why? My question is, is that, you know, if we bring if our audiences in our media companies were to have, would our revenues have? And do we really make enough money from social media to be worth giving up our future or our autonomy? Well, I, I'm going to get to that in a second with the ACCC uh, discussion. But can I just also play a devil's advocate myself here, which is that haven't the media companies themselves invited it's kind of what Ricky's saying in a way haven't the media companies themselves invited their audiences to interact with their stories on Facebook so perhaps there's a little bit rich now complaining that uh, you know oh dear we've got to look at what's being said on the comments pages I just want to clarify one thing I'm not giving Facebook a get out of jail free card here one bit no I neither am I but I'm asking it's a fair question isn't it yeah the point I'm trying to make is that if you publish the content as Facebook, you hide behind Section 230 and say you're not responsible for the content. If you then put the content on the page to drive traffic and consumption of your platform, which you then sell as Facebook, and you drive the commentary and the conversation because that's the reason you exist, and then you're not liable for that, what are you liable for? Exactly. And yeah. so my point is is that oh. I don't think in any way whatsoever. I actually listened to uh, Kate Brito from news.com.au on this very show talking about this mm. this morning, and I was raging about it in my car because the whole point is, is that if you, you either play the game and play the same game, as social media, mm. or you don't play the game, right? Either, you know, you can't fight a completely vacant argument and say, we're not responsible for anything that happens on here. And oh, by the way, if something bad does happen, we're not responsible for that so, either. Uh, Antoinette or Emily, and then Emily, is it, mm. is it, I mean, is it time not to play the game? I mean, I'm not, I don't have uh, as much, you know, I, I've, my career's been largely broadcast. I'm a, a relative newbie to the digital space um, when I joined 10 Daily. Um, so I'm interested to hear some of Ricky's solutions for not playing the game or how media outlets can be sustainable without relying on social media eyes. Um, from what I've seen, it's really hard to get people off those, you know, uh, particularly the, de the demographic um, that uh, 10 Daily and the project reach to get them off those social social media platforms. So I wouldn't say I am experienced enough to say okay. it's time to not play the game only because I don't know what the best alternative is. Well, perhaps another way of looking at this, and that brings in the ACCC's 
the HCC being the Australian Consumer Competition uh, Commission, have this digital platforms inquiry. As I understand it, the report has gone to the government. It's going to be released any day soon, and we're all going to be very interested as to what's in it. Uh, the AFP will tell us, won't they? <laughs> well, the metadata will tell us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, Emmy, so... What do you think? So, okay, let's 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 say the not playing the game is not the best option. Perhaps one of the options is to reduce the market power of Google and Facebook. How would you do that? How, what what's the what's the answers here? What are the answers to? I mean, one of the answers, for instance, that's been put forward is that there should be a kind of content tax on Google and Facebook for using news media oh. content, and that money should be oh. sent fed back into the news media industry. What do you think of that idea? Um, I mean, look, I'm always a bit suspicious of uh, taxes or government money going into the news business other than via public broadcasting. Um, But, I mean, what we've got now is obviously struggling um, and at least feels like it has to rely on on Facebook and social media to drive traffic, mm. to get clicks, to get advertising revenue um, or new subscribers. Um, I wish I had a, a clear solution, um, but I'm Okay, I Ricky, don't. we've done a deal with the devil. How do we unwind it? Yeah, so I don't think anybody went into this pact expecting it to end up where it did, including the tech companies. Yeah. I think they're, I also, I think they're I also confused. I think you're right, yep. Um, oh. But, you know, that's because they talk tech and we talk truth. And they're very hard to understand what they are if you come from two completely different worlds. Um, What I would say, though, is that we can't have a situation where, as I mentioned before, uh, the tech companies have Section 230, a complete get-out-of-jail-free card in the U.S. That means they can do anything that they want and not worry about what is said. Um, and that our laws have not kept pace with the changing technology. I would also go so far as to say to you that Google will tell you, um, or they've certainly told me, that what they've built and the AI that they've built, they have no idea where it's going and they don't know where it's going to go next. So how do you create a law for something that you can't put in a business plan or tell anybody it's going to be along in three or four years? So we're in completely uncharted territory. What I would say, though, is what we can control is where we choose our content to go. Mm-hmm. So in the early 2000s, when I was in the UK with News Corp, there was a very serious discussion about removing all news content from Google search to just control its distribution. And the control of that was, OK, our traffic goes down by 98% or whatever it might be. Pretty well but maybe we just focus on growing our traffic as the media companies as we used to be when we used to have to sell newspapers or have the best stories or create an economy of scale that was based on what we actually contribute to our audience rather than just going and finding the audience while but they're you, that else. didn't happen. No, that did not happen. And we made the pact with the devil and we've been paying for it ever since. So Uvu says it's going to repatriate $20 billion worth of ad revenue back to the news media industry. How are you going to do that? Yeah. So what we do um, is that we're a partnership between broadcasters and publishers all over the world. So we believe that the future of news telling will be video led. So what we do is we partner with broadcasters like the BBC and Bloomberg and Reuters and the Associated Press and others all over the world. And we take all of their video output, which is hundreds of thousands of videos. We put them in the cloud. We then have a separate technology that what that reads articles and identifies what they're about and then says this video is relevant to this article and enables the journalist to put the video in the page. We resisted the temptation as a tech company to insert that video in the page without human interaction. We could have done it. It would have made us a much bigger and much more valuable company, but we didn't do that. What we do is we take those video recommendations and recommend them to a journalist. Only when a journalist embeds them in the page do they ever appear. And when the journalist embeds it in the page, it teaches 
is the machine. So we're actually using journalists to teach machines to distribute trusted content. Now, how does that repatriate money from Facebook and Google? It's because Facebook and Google doesn't understand that. And so if we want to get... What do you mean is it they don't understand? What is it they don't understand? They don't understand that a video in an article of a cat being sick in a bucket that drives 100 views is more relevant for that article than the actual video about what the article is about. Mm -hmm. They just recognize the metric, the echo. Lots of people have watched it, therefore it is viral. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's another bugbear of mine. I, I see people working in newsrooms saying, what do you do? I work on virality. Virality is just what we used to do with the best stories. They're mm-hmm. the ones that people want to read. Yeah, it's right. not something Good, yeah. we've just invented. It's just got a new so, name. So h- how relevant are these articles? Uh, how relevant is the video to the article content, to the journalism? Or are they just kind of fun videos to watch? What, from our perspective, from Uvu? Yes. Oh, no, it's 100% directly contextually relevant. So the story will be that, uh, you know, uh, just pick something from the last couple of days. So Donald Trump on his 4th of July with the jets flying over will have a selection of videos from perhaps 20 different broadcasters all talking about their perspective on that. So you'll have a Fox News perspective might be that they're very positive, but then the Guardian's coverage may be very different and AP's coverage may be very middle ground. And the journal makes a decision. The journal decides. Right. But the journal is teaching the AI. Absolutely. what is, what, to what end is it teaching that, though, if the journal keeps deciding? Every time the journal overrules or validates the machine's recommendation, it upweights that that validation. I get you. So that by the time uh, Australia wakes up, every journalist in the US and New Zealand has taught uh, the uh, machine, Compass, our Compass machine. And just quickly, the $20 billion, how are we going to get that back and can I have some? Well, because $20 billion, <laughs> $20 billion is how much uh, the uh, two tech companies, uh, Facebook and Google, have taken out of uh, video mm-hmm. from media companies and broadcasters over the last five years. That money isn't theirs, it's ours. Uh, they've taken it and put it on rubbish on YouTube. Uh, what we need to do is to bring audiences back at scale into publishers. So here's an interesting stat for you. Do, has anybody here read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Of course. Mm-hmm. Right. What was Douglas Adams' Adams uh, answer to 42. Life, the Universe, and Everything? Yeah. The number, 42. 42, it wasn't. Yeah. It was 26. And the reason it's 26 is because the 26 largest newspapers in the world have an audience larger than Facebook. So you only need to get 26 publishers and broadcasters to collaboratively one, to achieve it. Okay, there you go. We will. I think we should have a whole show de- uh, devoted to having Ricky in the room with someone from Facebook and someone from Google. Would you be up? Yeah, that? I think so. I was, I'm uh, keen to hear that. I'm going to take some notes as well. We'll I do that one. On that, that 20 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, um, let's move on. Uh, recently on the Fourth Estate, we've been digging over the digital news report from the Reuters Institute uh, for the study of journalism at Oxford University. This is an annual report. surveys about 38 countries. Uh, the, the, the Australian part of it is done by the University of Canberra. And it asks uh, a, a, a series of basically questions about news usage. And this year's report had some very troubling uh, results in the Australian context, which was essentially a large number of people, 65% in fact, either occasionally, sometimes or often avoid the news, which does seem like a very large number. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess one way of looking at that is that um, we're not providing the news that people these people, these 65%, actually want to read, listen, or um, or watch. And maybe part of that is that we're not talking to those people because uh, the news media industry is dominated by, you know, white blokes like me. What do you think about the internet? <laughs> is it all my fault? What do I think about white blokes like you, Peter Frey? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, do, I do think... Um, 
uh, and this is something Media Diversity Australia is doing some research into at the moment, we're doing a diversity audit of all free-to-air news and current affairs programs across the country, um, looking at who tells our news um, and how that um, pairs up with, which we know it's not going to, but just how um, poorly that reflects the Australian population. But further to that, we're going to look at UK, US, Canada and the New Zealand and New Zealand and see um, how their newsrooms are faring in representation and perhaps learn from some of their policies um, um, as to how we can have more diverse bodies in newsrooms um, and what the flow-on effect then that is to more diverse perspectives and stories. I know from my experience, from the people we've spoken to around the country in the workshops we've held and from our committee here in uh, the National Committee, the Queensland Committee, and we're just about to launch in Victoria, some of the things we're hearing and feeling um, is that not only do journos not necessarily have longevity in this industry, they're often in junior roles, um, and when they are in newsrooms um, and contribute, want to contribute to a story um, of national significance, be it about their cultural group, um, they often don't have the editorial clout or they're not in senior leadership positions to really have a, a huge amount of impact. So why they might, you know, have a little bit of one story or one story idea, um, it's not necessarily reflected in, you know, what the rundown is or what mm. makes front page. Um, so what's the answer the to, Antoinette, what's the answer, do you think? You got any early thoughts about that? Is it a kind of quota system or, or, or what? I don't know about quotas. And again, we're, we're looking to see what the BBC has done. And again, our academics are doing this as we speak. Um, I don't believe necessarily quotas are the answer because I don't know yet we're, we're interrogating how it's played out elsewhere what we've seen in Australia is that there's quite a lot of resistance to the diversity discussion I don't think we have very grown-up discussions um, about race and multiculturalism um, in the first instance and I think if newsrooms feel that they're being forced to hire people because they're of a certain ethnic background particularly in a climate where, as we know, um, media, a lot of media outlets, most media outlets are struggling um, to maintain audiences. A lot of journalists are being made redundant. I'm just not sure right. okay. that's a successful recipe. When are we going to, to see this to, research? Um, the results will be out early 2020. Okay, great. Um, well, you'll definitely so have to come on the show and talk about them. That, yeah, they're, they're, they're well underway. And I'll, you know, have more, you know, I, I don't want to jump the gun and say we've got to do x y or z but i don't and my my understanding at the moment based on the experience my experience and other people of diverse backgrounds in newsrooms is that even when there is diversity spoken about by management and cadets brought in or mm. interns often they don't last they leave within two years there's a real retention problem because there there isn't a clear career path for success there's often middle management um uh, middle management blocks um uh, unconscious bias so i'm I'm just not sure that okay. saying you have to you have to employ ten NESB you know cold people sure. or indigenous people in an environment where people are struggling for dear life to maintain their jobs is going to be good for long term change. Emily, you got any thoughts about this? Um, I mean, look, in my experience, most of the newsrooms I've worked in have been overwhelmingly white, and the people making the decisions, like Antoinette said, about what goes on the front page are white men. Yes. Um, and that's overwhelmingly still the case across the country, even though even I think at we a, are, Even at SBS, even at SBS, yeah, the yeah, people even, who decide on the rundowns and making the calls are still, you know, middle-class, middle-aged white men who live in affluent areas and were private, probably privately educated. So even at our, our multicultural broadcaster, 
um, they're the decision makers largely. Yeah, and I I think um, also like Antoinette said, um, at a time when lots of journalists are losing their jobs and scared for their jobs, um, any sort of quota system feels especially threatening. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, in general, I think quotas are a good idea. I'm not sure that in our industry necessarily. So how do you make the case that you need a more diverse industry? I mean, is it I mean, I guess you could argue, I would argue that is a solid business idea to have a more diverse... It's, it's absolutely. Yeah, and I abs- think, you know, like we've been speaking about this whole show, trust in media has been steadily declining. And I think probably part of that is that the mainstream media doesn't really represent most of its potential audience. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that's probably as good a case as any to, to encourage um, greater diversity. I think, um, you know, there have been some instances where sim- for organisations simply recording uh, the diversity um, of, of female versus male talent or staff has helped um, increase a better balance between experts used and those sorts of things. So maybe something like that would work. Um, you know, just like a public accountability and having mm. it um, written down and published what the diversity is like in particular yeah, organisations. I'm, I'm, like I'm not sure what the UK is like, but we're, um, Ricky, you might have more understanding there. Um, but in the US, um, all employment forms, you fill out just like we do with our tax file number and our, our date of birth. You, you fill out, there are certain categories that capture um, your ethnicity. So whether you're going to work for Microsoft or Maccas, they have that kind of data on the, you know, the ethnic makeup of their workforce. We don't have that. So for the first time in, in Australian history, Australian media history, we're going to hold a mirror and a pretty uncomfortable mirror up mm. to the industry to say, this is who is telling our stories. And this is at a time where we know you aren't engaging audiences as well as you should. So forget that this should be, is the, perhaps the politically correct thing to do. It is the commercially viable. It is the smart thing to do because this is your audience. Your audience, 49% were born overseas. I have a parent who was born overseas. One in five live with a disability. Yep. Where our argument is that difference and diverse is the mainstream. And if you need to capture the mainstream, which we know so many media outlets desperately do for their sustainability, well then, hey mate, how about you start reflecting and you'll have a you'll have your finger better on the pulse for okay. what Australians are feeling and thinking and wanting and fearing and whatnot. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Ricky for a near final word. Anything to say on this matter, Riggy? Yeah, I mean, well, look, as a, as a white male former uh, <laughs> media executive and a Brit, um, I'm probably not best qualified, to be honest, to have an opinion on this other than to support both of you in what you've said. Uh, I agree that there needs to be diversity. I do want to go back to one other thing, though, uh, that came up in that survey results that you were mentioning yes, earlier on. Yes, the news avoiders. Yes, which is the fact that people are avoiding news. That seems very odd because all the data suggests complete opposite. So... Um, you know, if you go and chat to all of the major news brands, and we've got, you know, Tenor here, and, um, you know, you go and talk to news.com.au from your podcast Ooh. the other day, everybody's traffic is growing. So actual news consumption is rising. I think the question mark about trust is, is I would ask you to go and play this game at the next dinner party you're at. Okay. Ask somebody to show oh. you on their mobile phone the latest article that they read and have a look at the brand that it sits under, okay? And it will be under one of the known news brands that we know. If you then go and ask five other people what story they read last on Facebook and ask them where it came from, they'll have no idea. I mm. think that people's no loss idea. of trust has everything to do with the fact that they're getting it oh. unnamed sources from Facebook when in actual fact uh-huh. the story, when they do trust it, comes from a brand that they know. All the more reason for us to take back control of the distribution of our oh. content. Mm. Okay, on that note, um, well, that's 
the penultimate note because I did want to double check in with Emily, who has moved from her crikey media role to this new venture called Inc., which is part of the crikey family. And how's that going? Just quickly. Uh, Great. Yeah. Um, so we launched, I think, two weeks or maybe two and a half weeks ago. Now um, it's... It's just a really exciting time to be at Crikey. Um, we had an investment from two of our um, shareholders, which has funded, I think, 10 new journalists. Yeah, new jobs. Um, That's yeah, great. Which it's is so exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting to be working at a media company that is investing in journalism and in serious journalism that really allows us time to look into things in depth. Um, and when Ricky gives you back that $20 billion that he's going to... Well, I know it's not yours, Peter. Too. Peter, yeah. I, yes, appreciate, I appreciate that this is a uh, <laughs> that this, <laughs> this is a conversation we can always have. But look, to be fair, um, I actually do... I'm completely bullish on the future of media. I mm. think consumption's going up. I think creation's going up. I think quality is back in the discussion and trust is being discussed for the first time in a decade. I think all of those things are terrific. Well, you've got your... Oh. Investors investing in your new business. We've just invested half a million dollars of our investors' money in co-production video deals with the AFP and with Press Association in London and a whole host of others. I think that we are recreating what we lost yeah. because we've just realised the cost of losing the thing we valued. Antoinette, you concur? Oh, yeah, I'm saying I agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, since CBS has bought 10 and pumped more money into digital, they've really grown an audience that, um, you know, when are no longer watching the shows um, that perhaps their parents and grandparents are watching, they're not getting, they're not habitual television viewers for the evening news, but they're a younger, they're tapping into a younger demographic that cares about The Bachelor and Survivor and all of that reality television and what Kim Kardashian is doing and wearing. But similarly, they're, they're, they're still engaging in news and current affairs and politics. Okay. Um, um, and so, you know, that's that's actually an, an exciting new audience. All right. Well, on that very positive note from all three mm -hmm. of you, I'd like to thank you, Antoinette, uh, for uh, Latouf, for uh, your uh, your wonderful insights into the show and all the best of the media thank diversity you. work. Uh, thank you. Emily Watkins, media reporter for Inc., Crikey, you name it, investigative journalist, all these things. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Peter. And R Ricky Sutton, um, you're going to save it, the industry. It's great. Thanks for having you on the show. No big deal. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between at your leisure. And we'll be back next week with uh, more. And in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockerell, and my name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.